I get myself ready, I just want to say uh, what a delight it is uh, to be gathered together with the people of the Lord tonight. Um, we're a small but mighty group here in person, and I'm waving to all of those of you who are online. Uh, if there's a moment of awkwardness at some point, <laughs> it's probably just because I am just so blown away by the fact that we're doing this, this hybrid thing with a wonderful projector over here and real people in person over here. It's just incredible. As we come into this Holy Week, brothers and sisters, Traditionally, it is an opportunity to walk in the footsteps of Jesus through the most important week of his life on earth. This yearly tradition allows us to enter imaginatively into his story in a powerful way, day by day. So on Monday Thursday, today then, we gather with the disciples around the table where Jesus ate his final meal before facing death. This meal was a Passover meal a traditional feast that the people of Israel had celebrated at important times in their history. As I read through our passage in Luke 22 in the past few weeks, thinking about it and praying about it, I felt curious about one thing in particular. What was the Passover feast and what did it mean to the people of Israel gathered in 33 AD or so, the time of Jesus' death? So, it being 2021, when I wondered something, obviously, I went first to the internet. There I found tons of information about the modern Jewish practice of Passover quite easily. Modern Jews celebrate Passover beginning with a deep clean of their homes to eliminate all the crumbs of bread with leavening or yeast. Then they prepare the meal in advance so that they can sit down and rest on the Sabbath. They set a special plate with unleavened bread called matzah with bitter herbs and meat and, and hard-boiled eggs. They set out a, a series of cups of wine with special significance to each one. But there are significant differences between what Luke describes in today's passage and the modern practice of, of Passover. So my search online only left me more curious. I should have known. I wondered, what did Passover mean to Jesus? So then I went where I should have gone in the first place, to the Bible. As many times as I have tried to read the whole internet, and as much wisdom as I have found from connecting to wise voices online, it has never compared to what I can learn from looking closely at the scriptures. When we have a question about the Bible, the best place to go is the Bible to look for other places, for in, in this case, where the Passover was mentioned, to seek out its origins. I know in my mind that this is the right answer. I teach this to other people all the time, but how easily I forget it myself. Opening my Bible then, I look to the Old Testament to tell me what is going on in this passage in Luke 22. I started with Exodus 12, which is in our yearly readings for Monday Thursday, and it was included in our, in our service sheet tonight. There, I read the story, which we read tonight, of the first Passover. The people of Israel had been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And finally, God had told them, 
I have chosen the night that I will judge Egypt for their injustice against you. The night when you can enter into your freedom. Pack up everything that you own. Prepare unleavened bread. It'll be quick to cook and easy to carry with you on your journey. Prepare bitter herbs to remember the bitterness of your slavery. Choose a lamb. On the right evening, slaughter, slaughter that lamb at twilight. Mark the doorway of your home with its blood as a sign that you belong to me. So when I bring my judgment on Egypt, I will pass over you. Slow roast the lamb, eat it late that night with your belt tied, your sandals on, your staff in hand, God is saying, ready to leave as soon as you get the word. The people obey. And the angel of the Lord passes through Egypt that night. In all Egypt, the firstborn sons, the sons of promise, are consumed by the consequences of Egypt's injustice and sin. But the firstborn sons of Israel are saved by the faithful sacrifice of the Lamb. God came that night in power to free his people. God led them in a pillar of cloud and fire, and then they crossed the Red Sea and headed into the desert of Sinai. It was the beginning of their new life of freedom. Then, uh, Passover happens again, a, a second time. Sinai becomes the place where people will the people will celebrate their second Passover in the book of Numbers, chapter 9, in remembrance of the first. They had just built and consecrated the tabernacle, the tent of God's presence, ordaining... Uh, and, and they ordained their priests and Levites and uh, celebrated the second Passover. God's presence descends right after that passage in a cloud on the Ark of the Testimony and on the tent of meeting, continuing to lead them through the wilderness. It was the beginning of a new life of worship. Yet because of their unfaithfulness, as we saw in um, the psalm that we read tonight, Psalm 78, what could have been an 11-day journey from Egypt straight into the promised land of Canaan became 40 years of wandering. But we hear of Passover again at another time of new beginning in the book of Joshua, chapter 4, when the warrior Joshua leads the people over the Jordan River and into the promised land. Before their first battle in Jericho, they stop. It's the weirdest thing. Why would you stop? Like, you're right in enemy territory. But the, the first thing they do is stop and celebrate the Passover to remember that it is God who brought them out of Egypt, who fights their battles, who justly judges the nations, and who will bring them into freedom. After their festival, the commander of the Lord's army appears to Joshua and gives him clear instructions about how to move forward into the promised land. So this has set up a pattern in the Old Testament stories when the people faithfully celebrate Passover, God shows up in power for a new part of their story. But then after Joshua, for hundreds of years, we don't really hear about the Passover again. 
The people go through cycles of sin and unfaithfulness. They follow other gods. They put their faith in human kings. There are only two faithful kings who are recorded in the Old Testament as celebrating the Passover once the temple has been built and consecrated. King Hezekiah and King Josiah. But despite the faithfulness of these two, there are tens of of unfaithful kings who have led the people of Israel astray. And Israel is conquered, first by Assyria, then Babylon. And though some people return to the land, they are willing to wait for God to come in power to the rebuilt temple. In this Old Testament context, then, the story we read of Jesus and his disciples celebrating the Passover, when we come to Luke, when we come to the New Testament, when we come to this small group of disciples gathering together around the Passover meal, it's electric with anticipation because we know what happens in this story when the Passover is celebrated by God's people. As Jesus faithfully celebrates the Passover, God's presence is finally about to return. God is going to return to his temple in power and lead his people into freedom. Jesus himself is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of Passover. But the people will not be freed, not from outward and visible political oppression, which is what they're hoping for, but from the inward and spiritual slavery to sin that has created that cycle of sin that Israel was stuck in, no matter who was in con- overpowering them or what, what nation was in control at the time, their hearts were oppressed by sin. So in the, fall, in the days following this Last Supper, God will give his own firstborn, Jesus, who will become the Passover lamb without the blemish of sin, slaughtered at twilight, whose death will fulfill the sacrificial system once and for all. Jesus' death will tear the curtain of the temple in two and give all members of the community of Israel, and indeed the world, access to the holiest of holies and to the presence of God. But what a strange way to accomplish justice and peace. Why does Jesus have to die and die in the way that he did? How is it that judgment for sin becomes absorbed by Jesus himself? As Jesus fulfills the Passover in Luke 22, he also reinstates that Passover meal to become a new covenant and a new thing to remember. That of unleavened bread, the matzo, blessed and broken, becomes a symbol of Jesus' body broken on the cross. The wine becomes a symbol of Jesus' blood shed on the cross, marking that we belong to God. Jesus' body becomes, in a way, the new temple of the indwelling Holy Spirit. By eating this meal, by drinking this wine, Jesus' disciples, the apostles who were there that night, became a part of Jesus' body with the full privileges of access to God. 
And Jesus, immediately after um, instating and, and asking them to, to eat and to drink in remembrance, he invites them into the promised kingdom to become leaders in spiritual eternal kingdom that they do not yet fully understand. They're still a bit confused. They want to see Rome defeated like Egypt was, like Jericho was. They want thrones. They want cabinet positions. They don't understand that God's biggest enemy is the sinful and rebellious human heart. They want to debate about who's going to betray Jesus, who will have the best position, who will be his right-hand man in the new kingdom. They're competing against one another and vying for the highest place. But Jesus calls them out. He says instead, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. I, Jesus said, am among you as one who serves. So Jesus, the firstborn, not only of God, but of creation, has humbled himself. In Jesus, God has taken on human flesh, has lived first as Mary's baby, then as a teen in the temple, as a woodworker, as a teacher. In Jesus, God takes off his outer garments, um, as John describes this night, and kneels to wash his disciples' feet. In Jesus, God reclines at their table and settles their petty squabbles. In Jesus, God dies in their place, taking on himself the punishment for human rebellion against God. God even dies for us while we are still his enemies. Each time then, that Christians celebrate Holy Communion as we will tonight. We remember this Last Supper. As we say the words, lift up our hearts, we find ourselves lifted into the presence of God. We find the curtain that separates us from God's presence pulled back again, as if we are before his very throne in his temple. We remember Jesus, our Passover lamb, sacrificed once and for all, and we remember a God who in love willingly gives up all things for us. Then by eating that bread and drinking that wine, we are once again united with Christ, filled with his spirit and renewed in our spiritual calling to live as God's own children, leaders of a spiritual kingdom that will never fail. A kingdom where Jesus, our brother, the high king, is humble enough to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For many of us, these are familiar facts. I don't know that I have anything extremely profound to say except just look at this story again. But maybe not all of us who are gathered tonight in this room or online are Christians. Some of us may feel keenly that we have seen God as the enemy. If you are not yet a Christian, see the invitation to salvation that Jesus Christ holds out to you tonight. See the humility of his servanthood and accept the gift of his life given for yours. Put down your weapons as an enemy of Christ 
and put your faith instead in Jesus' sacrifice for the sake of the world. And may all of us see Jesus' example of servanthood inspire us also to serve, to give up our rights, our privileges, and our power in order to serve others. Amen. I'd like to close with the collect for Easter week from the, the prayer book. Almighty and everlasting God, who of thy tender love toward mankind has sent thy Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, to take upon him our flesh and to suffer death upon the cross, that all mankind should follow the example of his great humility. Mercifully grant that we may both follow the example of his patience and be made partakers in his resurrection. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.